Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 3, The Invitation. By the time Harry arrived in the kitchen, the three Dursleys were already seated around the table. None of them looked up as he entered or sat down. Uncle Vernon's large red face was hidden behind the morning's Daily Mail, and Aunt Petunia was cutting a grapefruit into quarters. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Caspar Terkyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. When I started dating the man who had become my husband, very quickly we knew that we wanted to be together for the rest of our lives. And so we pretty openly started talking about getting married at some point. But being a country girl that I am, I said, well, it would be improper for us to get engaged before we've been together for two years. And like, I want to live together for a while. Like, I really want to make sure that this is the right decision. And so when it came up to our second year anniversary, you know, we'd planned a lovely day. We went out to Salem together and to the museum and had a lovely lunch. And we came back that evening to have quite a fancy dinner to celebrate our love. And it was quite fancy. We had kind of one of those five course meals. And I'm not a drinker, but Sean had five different wine pairings. And so, you know, my intention for the dinner was purely just to have a lovely romantic evening. But as we'd been joking about this wedding thing, I was like, well, let's just hypothetically plan it, right? That's a good conversation topic. It's creative and fun. And so we talked about where would we host it and what would be the venue and who would come and who would officiate and what would we wear. And, you know, we really went into quite some detail. And so by the time we got to the final kind of dessert course, really the whole day was planned. We'd chosen the music for the service. Really everything was in place. And I kind of jokingly said to Sean, you know, well, it doesn't have to be hypothetical. And I think because of perhaps partly of the wine pairings, Sean just like burst out into happy tears and said, okay, let's get married. And I was like, oh my God. I like, it was like, I had zero awareness that that whole conversation, maybe even the whole day was leading up inextricably to this moment where we would decide to get married. And looking back, I'm like, it was so obvious that it was going to happen, especially as we were planning the whole thing. And I think that theme of awareness is really interesting, especially in this chapter, because the Dursleys are so much more aware of Harry's magical abilities, of his connection to the Weasleys, of Sirius as this protective role, as an outsider pressure, that it really changes the dynamic in their relationship. And I think, you know, just generally, how aware are we of the things that sit underneath the conversations that we're having or things that we're leading up to because of the conversation that we're having. And I kind of just want to dig into that theme of awareness today. 
I can't believe how dumb you were. <laughs> That's like adorable. I would have thought you were proposing. What else could you have possibly meant by that? Well, that's the other thing. I think maybe beneath my surface, like reasoning of like, haha, like what a joke to say it doesn't have to be hypothetical. Maybe there was this deeper intention of, you know, it's been two years. Like we yeah. can get engaged now. <laughs> According to my arbitrary rule of two exactly. years. Well, Casper, I hope it doesn't offend your timing to do a 30-second recap. (laughs) Sure. Let's do it. Okay. You go first today. Okay. On your mark, get set, go. So this chapter is really all about an invitation that Harry receives from the Weasleys. Um, it's a, a envelope covered in stamps, and Molly's like, I hope I put enough stamps on it. And it's like, please, uh, hello, welcome. We'd like to invite Harry to come with us to the Quidditch World Cup. It's very exciting. And Vernon's like, no, no, but I want to get rid of him, but no, I don't want to give him his way. Um, and then Harry's like, yeah, that's totally fine. I'll just write to my Uncle Sirius, and Sirius will beat you up. And then Vernon's like, oh my God, mass murderer. Okay, you can go. And then everyone's really excited, and, and Dudley is not eating. 31 seconds. Oh, I keep doing that. Yeah. And Percy's head boy. <laughs> oh, no, he's not anymore. Not anymore. Okay, your turn. Three, two, one, go. So in this chapter, we find out that Dudley has just gained so much weight that, like, literally clothes won't fit him anymore. So he's home and they have to go on this diet. But Harry secretly has received all of this food. So he's not really on the diet. He's sneak not on the diet. And then um, they're all sitting at breakfast, the Dursleys, and they get an invitation from Molly being like, oh, we would love to have Harry over. And Harry manipulates Vernon into saying, yes, he can go. And then he goes upstairs and um, per- uh, Ron has written him a letter. And Harry writes back saying, yes. There's a lot of letter writing. Yes, there is. Because he also edits his letter to Sirius. He's like, um, by the way, I'm going to go be at the Weasleys. P.S. P.S. So, Casper, where did you see this theme of awareness in this chapter? I mean, so much time in this chapter is spent exploring Dudley's weight. It's kind of intense. You know, obviously, his parents care about him. And and there's this interesting phrase where the text tells us that Petunia refused to see that Dudley had become the size of a small killer whale. And it says so much about awareness of a problem, but maybe not wanting to acknowledge it or awareness of your reaction to something, but being uncomfortable with what the reaction might be. I just feel like Petunia is really suppressing a lot here. And Finally, they receive some medical advice that they need to change Dudley's diet, and then things do drastically change. But this is something that has been building for some time. Petunia, I think, shows a lot of her love in how she spoils or delights Dudley, and that involves presents, but it also involves food, and food is really a sign of love. But it's reached a place where it's clearly not healthy for Dudley, and she is unwilling to adjust that until this kind of medical intervention. So there's something around what we want to do and our awareness that that might not be the right thing, but struggling to change that, which I can definitely empathize with. Oh, absolutely. I feel like food is this like very fraught thing with love, right? We want to bake things for the people we love and that becomes very complicated. But the other thing that this chapter made me think of as far as Dudley's weight and awareness is who is saying things like Dudley reached the size and weight of a young killer whale, or he had piggy eyes. Mm. And I'm wondering if that is from Harry's perspective. Mm. And so we are being invited to see that this is like a place in which Harry can specifically feel superior to Dudley. It just feels so ugly to me to watch somebody who is struggling with extreme obesity 
throwing out these criticisms and judgments of Dudley in this moment. And if it's Harry, who's 14 and has been humiliated by Dudley all this time, then I feel like I would understand it in one way. I would understand it in the way that you can understand someone's vulnerability and be empathetic to it. Or if somebody is really nasty to you, you can understand their vulnerability and like be trying to exploit it and belittle them for it. But I don't think it's clear as to who the narrator is. And so this chapter is just so hard for me. I feel like we are beating up on a kid with a real health issue. And I understand that Dudley is a bully, but I just, like, don't think that that justifies being so hard on him. I'm really struck, Vanessa, by that connection between Harry and Dudley here. And I think so much of awareness is often about comparison, right? We might be taking in someone else's experience or or, or looking at them very much based on our own. And so often we're kind of taking the standards or the frameworks that we apply to ourselves and, and putting it onto someone else. And... You know, in this case, Harry doesn't seem to struggle in any way with food, you know, which is kind of miraculous in terms of the lack of it that he had as a kid. You know, he loves the feasts at at Hogwarts, you know, like sweets, but we don't really get a sense from the text that there's a challenge there for him. And so here's something that's very easy for Harry. And, you know, he seems to stay pretty in shape throughout the books, even though he likes to indulge on cake hidden beneath the floorboards and all of that kind of thing. And so I think for him, there's very little empathy around Dudley's relationship with food because he just doesn't have a sense of what the challenge might be. And I think that leads to that kind of nastiness around comparing Dudley to various different animals. Yeah, and I think that to a point you made earlier, like this is the way that he has been taught by the Dursleys to interact. There's a moment to me that shows a total lack of awareness with Vernon. Vernon says to Harry at one moment when they're like having this power struggle over whether or not Harry can go to the Quidditch World Cup, Vernon says like, you're standing there in the clothes that I put on your back. And Harry says only clothes that Dudley has outgrown. And I think that that shows, one, a complete lack of awareness on Vernon's side of how bereft Harry feels as far as clothes. Vernon sees this as a moment of, like, generosity. I've kept you clothed, whereas Harry sees it as just, like, a prolonged humiliation that all of the clothes he's ever had access to but haven't fit him at all and have been, like, castaways of Dudley. And I think also I would understand that there's some resentment on Dudley's size given that Harry is – sitting in this moment swimming in Dudley's old clothes. We're told that he has to roll up the sleeves of Dudley's old sweatshirt five times just to be able to have use of his hands. So I think that there is this, like, physical embodiment of Dudley's size over Harry's body Mm. that maybe explains some of this language where – the oppressive size of Dudley is enshrouding Harry in the moment that he's making these observations. But yeah, the fact that like Harry would say that Dudley is cultivating his grapefruit slice with piggy little eyes while Harry secretly knows that he has a feast waiting for him upstairs just seems beyond ungenerous to me. And I know that we're going to get a lot of feedback that Harry is abused, and I understand it just still feels so vicious to me. And I think we're seeing the cycles of abuse and the cycles of viciousness in this moment. Yeah. 
Where else did you see awareness in this chapter, Casper? Well, I think Harry shows an incredible amount of awareness in how he handles Vernon. Like, if we think about how Harry wanted to go to the zoo in the very first book, he's not particularly vocal about it, but his desire is really clear. And this time, Harry just as much wants to go to the Quidditch World Cup, right? He gets the invitation, but he plays it so cool because he knows exactly the bind that Vernon will find himself in. And so he, you know, he just plays it very nonchalant and just pretends that, you know, oh, I can't I'll go, okay, no worries. I'll just write to Sirius and then just just throws that little kind of grenade into the conversation. And so I think Harry has learned, you know, and, and, and this is not uncommon if you're living in a kind of subservient relationship, even the most loving subservient relationships, like being a child with parents in the house, like you learn how to navigate that and you learn when to ask for certain things. I really see Harry's awareness of how to manipulate people growing incredibly. Oh, yeah. And I mean, he even knows like not to say Hogwarts, but to say school. Exactly. Which I am very impressed with Molly's awareness of that in the letter that she writes to Vernon. Absolutely. So first of all, I just love that the Weasleys are like, obviously, Harry is coming with us to the Quidditch World Cup. We're just going to pretend to placate his aunt and uncle by sending this letter. But Molly's letter to Vernon, other than her stamp faux pas, is like, Absolutely brilliant. She uses a lot of language that she could say Hogwarts, but instead she says the remainder of the school holidays and see him safely onto the train back to school. She doesn't say, like, we can take him to platform nine and three quarters and get him onto the Hogwarts Express. And just, I mean, like this political move of asking permission in this way when really, like, she knows that she's just going to come and pick up Harry no matter what. Yes, and, I mean, she does mention the Department of Magical Games and Sports. She mentions Quidditch. Like, there's enough magical references that she's making, but... Each of them, I think, are also signaling their importance, right? She says, my husband has connections at the Department of Magical Games and Sports. So she's like signaling authority. Um, And she does say at the beginning, you know, we've never been introduced, which is very smart. But then she says, but I'm sure you've heard a great deal from Harry about my son, Ron, which again puts Vernon on the back foot because it shows that he doesn't know something that he should know. This is a very, very like an aware letter. Yeah, I mean, there's the potential that she genuinely doesn't understand how disconnected Harry is from Vernon Petunia. And so she's like, obviously, we talk about Harry all the time, so obviously Harry has mentioned Ron. But I love your reading that she's hyper aware and she's like, are you a terrible aunt and uncle who's never even heard of my son? Exactly. I think this is a letter in the like Jane Austen best tradition of poison pen letters through civility, right? Like throwing all sorts of like social bombs into someone else's living room with a like perfectly crafted letter which has had 12 drafts. Oh my god, being British sounds so stressful to me. (laughs) (laughs) Like listen to this and tickets are extremely hard to come by. You know, it's just like we've got them and you don't. (laughs) We would of course be glad to have Harry to stay. I don't know, I just feel like the language is really, really thoughtful. This whole interaction though between the Dursleys and Molly 
I think points to a bigger question about the place of magical society within broader British society. You know, we know that the magical world is hidden from most muggles. And there's a long history of kind of a tension between those two societies. And I wonder, you know, we're going to have such crises that cross over these two worlds in the coming books. If there is at this point any potential of cohabitation in public and like raising awareness of magical issues or like muggle understanding of magic life. I just wonder if that would ever be a possibility or if this kind of sub society is condemned to invisibility forever. Because I do think we see so many broken relationships, especially people who fall between the cracks like squibs, right? They can never really belong in either world. There's a cost to this disconnection between these two worlds. And, you know, you often hear in campaigning about, oh, we need to raise awareness about this issue. We need to raise awareness about, you know, someone's experience. And I do think there's an argument that that could be possible, if not beneficial. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I completely understand why Molly doesn't invite like Vernon and Petunia to the Quidditch World Cup. But it would be interesting if Hermione's parents went, Mm. right? Like, why aren't there these like crossover gestures when clearly Hermione's parents are incredibly supportive of the fact that they have a witch daughter? Especially when we think about what motivates evil in this story. It's so much about superiority over muggles, which my reading of that is really it's a response to the oppression that they feel as magical beings. I feel like that conflict between Harry and Dudley about food is really replicated at a macro level in terms of wizarding and muggle identity. And I think you see an exact embodiment of that tension in this conversation between Harry and Vernon, Mm. right? Where Vernon is scared of the wizarding community. And so the wizarding community either tries to stay hidden and keep secrets and manipulates, which creates more fear. I feel like sometimes raising awareness about an issue doesn't feel like enough, but it is such an important first step, right? I mean, something that I know that you've talked about is that the reason that the gay rights movement was able to move forward you know, in some ways as quickly as it did was because as people started coming out, everybody knew somebody who was gay, but we don't all know somebody who's in a different social class from us, right? Right. We don't all know somebody who's a different race from us. And whereas like, to some extent, we're all related to somebody who's queer. And so I do think that awareness and knowing each other, right, like really can break down these barriers to have real implications of liberty and freedom and that It would be nice if the Quidditch World Cup was sort of, like, open to the muggles. They'd be amazed. Oh, yeah. They'd all be in love with the Vilas. (laughs) They so would. Actually, that could cause serious damage to the economy. Uh, (laughs) But I I do think that those relationships of love that cross those kind of boundaries are these powerful, like, signals of healing and, and what's possible at a cultural or macro level. Casper, are you ready for this week's spiritual practice? Yes, I am. So this week we are going to do Lectio Divina again, and I am wondering if you would like to pick a sentence for us. Okay. I'm flicking through the pages. He was going to watch the Quidditch World Cup. Ooh. He was going to watch the Quidditch World Cup. 
Okay, Casper, so step one of Lectio, what is literally happening in this sentence? So Harry has just convinced uh, Vernon to allow him to go with the Weasleys to go to the World Cup. And this is the first time that Harry's going to go to a Quidditch match. It's certainly the first time he's going to the Quidditch World Cup. So he's kind of just realizing like, wow, this is really happening. I've got permission. I'm going to go. Yeah, it's like this moment of realization, like, oh, my God, this is actually going to happen to me. (laughs) He finally proposed. (laughs) Right? It's like that moment. We're like, it's real. It's real. So stage two of Lectio Divina is allegory. So what words in this jump out at you and remind you of other stories? Casper, can you read the sentence for us one more time, please? He was going to watch the Quidditch World Cup. So... What words in here remind you of something else? I mean, the word watch strikes me a little bit because it, I, I don't know if, if, if he's necessarily been waiting to go and see a Quidditch match. We know that since he met Ron, like, there's so much of the wizarding world that he's taken on as his own. So he's become a big fan of the same team that Ron loves. And, you know, he's got a book with watching all the favorite players and their orange, you know, kit, all of that kind of stuff. So there's something here about anticipation but, I mean, obviously, the World Cup just also reminds me of the soccer, football World Cup. In my experience, like, it really is a time when people come together and people are watching games, you know, on the street and wearing their team's jerseys or flags. And especially in a country where soccer is a big thing, like, it is really this incredible sense of the world coming together and about something that's bigger than themselves and they still have a stake in it. There's something very powerful in that. And uh that internationalism is going to be such a big part of this book in terms of Beaubaton and Durmstrang coming to coming to campus. So how about you, Vanessa? What allegorical kind of stories or images come up for you? It also, I mean, the World Cup is what came up for me also. And I just am someone with such mixed feelings about sports or, as you would say, sport. Like when I think about the soccer World Cup, I think about corruption and the fact that often slave labor is used in order to build these facilities. And I am someone who the most hate mail I've ever gotten in my life was from local Bostonians when I came out very hard against American football. So I just have such strong mixed feelings about sports and how it glorifies a lot of war language and a lot of tribalism where you're just like rooting for things for the sake of rooting for things and but then yes I absolutely see the beauty of it my little brother is an athlete and like the positive impact that athletics has had on his life is incredible and the community that comes together and it I do think that sports is one of the only times where you see people of like totally diverse backgrounds hugging over something arbitrary and so yeah I was reminded of just like how complicated sports are. And I think we see that in this chapter of like, it's probably really expensive to go to the Quidditch World Cup. And I mean, it's sort of corrupt the way that they even get tickets to go and the privilege involved in being able to go. So I, yeah, I was reminded of all of the like complications of something like the Quidditch World Cup. I'm just looking at the words in the sentence, especially Quidditch. And we know that the Potter books are amazing at creating some new words and they always have some hidden meaning. So I'm just trying to think like quid in in like in England is a way of saying a pound sterling, like a shorthand term for money. And then ditch is kind of like you land in a ditch or right. Like it's Mm -hmm. an obstacle. You fall into it. So you're saying that Quidditch is a money suck? Yeah. Yeah. I'm really just echoing your point. Like I, I... I mean, I think about gambling in sports. I think about, right, there's there's something in that quid ditch. 
Casper, I'm jealous that you got two allegories. I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, take us to step three. Yes. Okay, so step three is what the sentence reminds us of in our own lives. And I actually have something for this. Mm. Mm -hmm. Shall I read it one more time? Yes, please. He was going to watch the Quidditch World Cup. So I'm reminded of the summer that I did my clinical pastoral education internship. The World Cup was on. And, you know, hospital waiting rooms can be this, like, incredibly diverse place where people come together in really beautiful ways and support each other in beautiful ways. And the hospital I was working at very intentionally didn't have the news on. They had, like, cooking shows in the Home and Garden Network on because they had done research about how having the news on stressed people out and, like, didn't bond people in the hospital waiting room. But the summer I was there, they had the World Cup on, and it was really beautiful, the ways that it brought people together in the waiting rooms and You know, it was also, it was just so funny. Every room I would go in for a visit, the World Cup would be on. I mean, it was just like a great opening way to connect with people and talk to people. And I don't think it would be possible for me to care less about the Soccer World Cup. But it was like such an important performance for that summer as like a way into conversations with people. So what about you? Well, I'm a big soccer fan when it comes to Leeds United. I know. I just love my Leeds. And it's like a big season for us. Like, I think this is the season we're going to go back up to the top flight of English football. And the only reason I support Leeds are because when I was 13 and in boarding school, it quickly became apparent that I needed like a soccer team amongst all these other boys. And so I, I really fancied the manager's accent who was from Ireland. His name was David O'Leary. And I was like, he sounds sexy. <laughs> Let's support him. <laughs> and it's been the love of great things ever since. But, you know, I, I also think for me, you know, my family is Dutch. And so supporting the Dutch football team when I'm in England is kind of like a way of claiming an identity, I think, which can be a really powerful thing. Yeah, I just had a moment with a student who wasn't mine. He was wearing a Laker jersey. And so I was like, oh, are you from Los Angeles? And he said, yes. And it turns out that we had gone to the same high school. Wow. And so, I yeah, I absolutely see the benefit of sports. I just think I also see the down sides. That's totally fair. Thank you. So Casper, step four of Lectio Divina is what do we feel called to after this experience? But can you just read the sentence for us one more time? He was going to watch the Quidditch World Cup. So this isn't based on our conversation, actually. But what I feel called to is like celebrating certain moments more. I think it's so sweet that, like, Harry has this realization, and even before he's on his way, he's just, like, having this moment of, like, private, woo! And I don't know, I feel like my life has a lot of things I should be celebrating and, like, taking little moments to be like, what? I just got to have that amazing experience. I think I should take more private moments to celebrate the wonderful things in my life. I am so with you. You know, I think on reflection, what I love about being a sports fan is that it's not actually about the game itself, especially because I live far away, right? I'm not in the stadium every week, and I'm sure that would be a different experience. But it's the story of hope and possibility about the game that's coming up next. Like, that's the real excitement and who's going to be on the pitch and what are the strategies that the team is going to use and how is this injury going to affect the team in whatever way. And I think that's what maybe being a sports fan is really about, is about that sense of possibility and hope. And maybe I need to do a better job of finding that 
elsewhere. Like, oh, I have this finance meeting coming up. (laughs) (laughs) This is an opportunity for me to bond with that person. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, I have these invoices to fill out today. I never know if it's like pathetic or adorable how much my brothers will say every season. I think this is the angel's year. <laughs> I do the same thing. But my favorite thing that my older brother says is like once the angels start like not doing that well, he'll go lots of baseball left. Lots of baseball left. Because <laughs> the baseball season is so long. And so whenever something is going poorly for me, I say to myself like lots, lots of, of baseball. baseball left. It's fine. Lots of baseball. I am going to take that to heart. This week's voicemail is from Kate McManus. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and everyone at the podcast team. I'm Kate, calling from St. Paul, Minnesota, and I just listened to your episode on Chapter 2 of Goblet of Fire. I was interested in your Lectio Divina conversation about who Harry reaches out to when he's worried about the pain in his scar. I actually listened to that segment twice, and I want to try my hand at Phase 3. When you talked about how Harry could ask Ron not to tell his father about his scar hurting, it reminded me of conversations I have had about being catcalled or of having my safety threatened. I'm speaking from my experience as a cisgendered woman when I say this, but we don't always tell authority figures when this happens because they might not help and they may judge or shame us when we tell our stories of our experiences. Yet telling a friend is a way of witnessing to someone who understands. Women might not look like they are speaking out, but they often report to each other over cocktails or cups of tea. And it's tricky to know where that line of reporting is. I'm probably not going to report every man who makes me feel uncomfortable on the bus, especially if I never see him again. But when a former student employee was harassing me for dates, I had to tell his supervisor, a man, in a very shaky voice what was going on. Luckily, in that instance, I was believed and the student faced consequences but I shouldn't have to feel lucky. This is a long way of getting to my real point. I wonder if some of Harry's fear is that no one will believe him, that the experience was intense as we the readers know that it was, and that the members of the Weasley family will think less of him. We live in a culture that shames victims for things that have been done to them. In the end, Harry reports to someone as isolated and as powerless as him. And it has a real effect on Harry, even if he can't immediately see it. First, it just makes him feel better, but also Sirius writes to Dumbledore, and then he comes back to Scotland. Sirius is on hand for the Triwizard Tournament and is one of the inner circle when Harry finally reports another act of violence, that Voldemort has returned and murdered Cedric Diggory. So a blessing for Harry and anyone else who has been victim blamed. I see you and I hear you. And a special blessing for Anita Hill for teaching us how to stand up to workplace harassment. Anyway, thanks so much for the podcast. I really love listening every week, though I have to get used to the new posting schedule. Have a great day. Kate, sadly, your voicemail is both so timely and so timeless. And what I really loved about it was how you were gleaning so much meaning from the text. I hadn't given thought to how much we can learn from Harry's reporting choices in this moment. And I think you've given us a lot to think about here. The thing I would say to male allies is that there's an opportunity for you, even if you are a good guy who would never do this, there are a million opportunities for you to let a woman get the last word in a board meeting, to really prioritize not interrupting women. There are still opportunities, even if your behavior is not at the point of harassment or assault, 
to notice the possibly more invisible ways in which you diminish women's voices. Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone from the pages of this chapter. Who are you giving your blessing to? I would like to bless Petunia. I think that it must be really hard as a parent to try to manage a child with weight issues and you want to support them and like sort of loving their body how it is, but you also want them to be healthy and teach them healthy eating habits. And it seems as though Petunia is someone who takes great joy in cooking for her child. And so cutting up a grapefruit into quarters and, you know, like watching her child be hungry, I would just imagine is very hard for her. And so, yeah, I want to offer a blessing for Petunia. And, you know, her son is away at school and he's home for the summer and she has to sort of like do this difficult thing over the summer. And that just must be really hard. So I would like to bless Petunia and everybody who's struggling with weight issues and supporting one another and being healthy. What about you, Casper? I'm going to give my blessing to Ron because he has like strategically chosen which parent is going to write to the Dursleys. And I think, you know, if you have the experience of being raised by two parents, like, you know which one to go to for which thing, right? There's that, like, strategic choosing. And he knows that Arthur would have been like, tell me more about the electrical wires in the the felatone or whatever it is. So he's like, no, I'm going to ask mom. So this is a blessing for anyone who's having to kind of navigate the politics of relationships, especially in a family. That's not always easy. I know when to go to Ariana and when to go to you. (laughs) In our little family. In our little family. Before we close the show, we wanted to ask a favor. We're very lucky that we receive really lovely emails. And it is one of the nicest things if you're creating something or if you're doing something in public to receive that kind of feedback. And we wanted to invite you, if you've seen someone, maybe they wrote an article or they were a talking head on a news show, or you really respect someone out there in the world who's taken a public stand for something, maybe at a risk, to maybe send them just a little note of thanks and to say that you were encouraged or inspired by them or that you appreciate what they've done, especially if they're kind of receiving a lot of backlash. So, you know, it can just be a simple two or three line email saying, you know, I saw that you've done this. I'm grateful that you're doing it. Best of luck. It can really mean a lot to people. So if there's someone that comes to mind as you're thinking about this, we'd be so glad if you'd send them a little note. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Be sure to send us your t-shirt designs and buy tickets for our Atlanta Live show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook, and leave us a review on iTunes. Casper doesn't know whether or not to love himself if you don't. (laughs) That's too real. (laughs) Next week, we'll be reading Back to the Burrow through the theme of mystery. Ooh. This episode was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Vanessa Zoltan, and me, Casper Terkyle. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. Thanks to Kate McManus for this week's voicemail. Our social media manager is Harshi Hetegay. Big thanks to Rebecca and Charlie Ledley and to Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you all next week. Bye. If and when you have children, I really hope you're involved in, like, organizing their sports day at their school. (laughs) To be clear, I do think that there are social justice-oriented ways to do sports. Oh.
Like, it's not about who's best at first base. It's about who loves playing first base most. I love it more than you love it. No, I love it more than you love it. Yeah. And then you have them box it out. Exactly. Now we're talking. <laughs> 